This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg, along with my co-host on Main Street, Craig Blumenshine. Hello, oh, Craig. How are you, Ashley? I am not too bad. Is still enjoying being able to walk to work. Yeah. Coming up in the second half of today's show, traveling for celestial events. And hey, speaking of did the heavens and stars, the Grammys. Too? I did not, but I know. I, I read some blurbs about it. You know, there were some big winners and some upsets. I bet it didn't mention the winners from North Dakota no, historically. How many have not. there been? Well, Peggy Lee. One. Johnny Guitar Lang. <laughs> Here's one that might be a little bit of a surprise. Norma Baker Flying Horse, known as Red Berry Woman, a clothing designer, winning a Grammy there. Um, there's a few more, but we want to talk today about one that we lost recently. Yes, Peter Shickley. He died on January 16th. He spent most of his professional life in New York, but never forgot North Dakota. He was a very successful composer and arranger, but was most recognized for his mythical character, PDQ Bach, and his classical music parodies. Peter Shickley periodically returned to Fargo to visit and perform his compositions with the Fargo-Moorhead Symphony. It was on such a visit a few years back that Bill Thomas recorded with him reading from his memoir. And to give you a taste of Peter Shickley's style, here is the beginning of maybe his most celebrated spoof. Good evening, music fans. Here we are at Philharmonic Hall in New York Mills, Minnesota. It's a beautiful night for a concert. There's not a cloud in the ceiling. And there's quite a crowd out here. Uh, about how many do you think there are, Bob? Oh, I don't know, Pete. Well, neither do I, but it's quite a crowd. And I think they're looking forward to hearing the New York Mills Philharmonic playing against the Danish conductor Heilige Dankesang. And here he comes now, ascending the podium. And the players are all lined up and ready to begin the first inning of Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 5 in C minor. And they're off with a four-note theme. This is very exciting. The beginning of a symphony is always very exciting, folks. I don't know whether it's slow or fast yet because it keeps stopping. It doesn't seem to be able to get off the ground yet. And it looks like, yes, it looks like we're coming up to a cadence here, folks. Ah, uh, the violins didn't cut off there. A little trouble with the violins. They weren't watching. And there's that four-note theme again, folks. And another stop. Just can't seem to get this piece off the ground. Now it seems to be rolling a little bit. Seems to be building up. Tell me, Bob, do you think you'd call that four-note idea a theme or a motif? Well, Pete, the uh, technical term would be motif that he uses to build a theme. I see. Thanks for setting me straight about that, Bob. Well, we're heading into the second theme section here, and we can expect a little modulation down there. Wow, did you hear that, Bob? Somebody down there in the horn section really flubbed that note. That was one of the worst fumbles I think I've ever witnessed in all my days. I think it was number one, wasn't it, Bob? Yes, it was, Pete. That was uh, Bobby Corn. <laughs> uh, Peter Shickley was not born in North Dakota, and he left right after high school. But you can sure hear his North Dakota roots in the recording that was purporting to be from a campus radio station in southern North Dakota. again with another program of fine music and PDQ Bach. We'll start with a little of the latter as usual. 
as we hear the Schlepptet in E-flat major, as performed by members of the Freshman 4-H Club Symphonic Society of the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. And we'd like to do this one for John and Biffy and their advisor, Mr. 4-H Club himself, Harry Herbert Hoover Heaver. Well, if you want to hear the Schlepptet or more of the goofy stuff that won him several comedy Grammys without ever having to do any stand-up, he, he won at least one straight Grammy as well, you can search Peter Shickley on the Internet. Or better, search his invention, P.D.Q. Bach, the supposed missing son of Johann Sebastian. But what we've got here now is Peter Shickley, in his own words, talking about his life in North Dakota and how it set him up for a great career in music. Some things you might expect, some things you might not expect. He was here for the premiere of a, quote, newly discovered, unquote, piece by P.D.Q. Bach with the Fargo-Moorhead Symphony in 2017, and he was talking to a very appreciative crowd. Thank you. My family moved to Fargo in 1947 when I had just turned 12, and my brother David was 10. We had lived in Washington, D.C. during the Second World War. My father worked for the Department of Agriculture, and my mother worked for the Quartermaster Corps. After the war, my father took a job as head of Agricultural Economics Department of North Dakota Agricultural College, as it was then called. We drove out here from D.C. in the summer of 1947 in the family car with our dog, Ricky. We had never been to Fargo, and it was right after the Second World War, and housing was hard to come by. So my parents had bought a house sight unseen with the help of some friends or somebody in the department. After our vacation stop, we continued on to Fargo. We drove in through the back door of town, and there were all these grain elevators and warehouses and a string of crummy businesses. I remember my mother in the front seat of the car crying softly <laughs> as we drove in. I will just jump ahead to say that the years in Fargo were maybe the best years of their lives. Turned out to be just great people here, and my parents had a wonderful life here. Uh, they were wonderful years for my brother and me as well. Uh, there were many ways in which Fargo, I would say, was the high point of our young lives. We had great friends, and they were very happy years for us. Fargo is where I got interested in music. Aside from listening a bit to classics like Peter and the Wolf, I wasn't particularly interested in music when I was younger. I was definitely not a child prodigy. At the very end of our time in D.C., uh, I got introduced to Spike Jones. <coughs> Does everybody know who Spike Jones was? Okay. And I became a fan. For those of you who might not know, Spike Jones was a musician and comedian who was quite popular in the 40s. I remember the first time I heard Spike Jones. I was in a record store and there was a sappy love song in the background. I wasn't listening to the words. And then suddenly the song got interrupted by two gunshots. And then it took off into this neo-Dixieland sound. And that was my introduction to Spike Jones. The song was Serenade to a Jerk. <laughs> we made a little theater in the basement of our house in DC. Uh, where we would put on, act out Spike Jones records, my brother and I and our friends. 
We also did plays with scripts, mostly like the westerns we saw on Fridays. <laughs> the Nitzo Theater was just starting when we left and moved to Fargo. My brother and I had just gotten a movie camera. In DC, I had a paper route. I was saving up my money from it to buy a movie camera so David and I could make movies. Then I lost David's cowboy hat from our matching cowboy outfits. And my folks made me buy him a new hat with my paper route money. <laughs> David didn't want a new hat, of course. He wanted the movie camera. <laughs> but my parents, parents felt there was a principle at stake here. <clears throat> Deus ex machina. Then I got an award for being such a good paper deliverer and the prize money was just enough to get a camera. So we were all set. Once we were here in Fargo, we set up the Nitzo Theater in our basement. We had a bedspread, two bedspreads for curtains, and a stage area, and some lighting. By this time, my brother and I had started a sort of Spike Jones type band, Jerky Gems and his Bommy Brothers. <laughs> we had two clarinets, violin, and tom-tom. It was me and John Helgeson on clarinet, my brother David on violin, and George Tharlson on drums. I was Jerky Gems, and my brother was Drip Water Squirt Fountain. <laughs> We're talking a class act here. <clears throat> I'm not sure what the other names were. I think it's safe, <clears throat> excuse me, I think it's safe to say that most, if not all, of my early musical efforts were for Jerky Gems and his Bommy Brothers. I recently came across a news clipping from 1948 from the Fargo Forum with a picture of us performing a version of the Song of the Volga Boatman that involved George Tharlson and Don Stephenson pulling a five-inch boat uh, across the stage while John Helgus and my brother and I are playing in the background. The caption says, director and clarinetist and sound effects man Peter Sickley, who also arranges for the band, nothing self-centered about me, <coughs> reports that he found transposing the piece for two clarinets and violin more difficult than he had anticipated. <laughs> the Nitzo Theater also continued doing plays. The news clipping I found uh, had a picture of a scene from one production, the Pony Express, which seemed to involve my brother getting ready to trip George Tharlson, who was about to stab John Helgeson, who was holding me up at gunpoint. <laughs> my brother and I were involved, uh, also involved in the community theater here. I did the kid shows like Tom Sawyer, and sometimes played a kid role or a young adult part in the adult productions as well. In one of them, I was scheduled to kiss my, the girl I had a crush on, but then she dropped out. <laughs> I remember one show had a guy, uh, an adult uh, from, here, from Fargo, who just would not learn his lines. And one of my memories of that play is the look of panic in the woman playing opposite him <laughs> as she waited for something, anything, that would give her a cue as to what her next line was. He would just make stuff up, and she would have this look of horror in her face. <laughs> I loved the theater and loved doing those shows. I took piano lessons with a friend of the family named Virginia Jensen. My mother had a clarinet that she had played in college, and I started fooling around on that, too. 
Fargo at that point had a very good clarinetist named Bertram McGarity. He taught at one of the colleges. So I went to take clarinet lessons with Bert and he listened to me and he pled, said, Peter, you've got so many bad habits on clarinet, it would be easier for you to start a new instrument. <laughs> And he suggested the bassoon, <laughs> which I had never regretted. It wasn't until later that I found out that the Fargo-Moorhead Community Orchestra, as it was then called, needed a bassoonist, as they didn't have any at the time, so Bert had a motive in his suggestion. <laughs> I played bassoon in the band at high school and joined the orchestra. My high school friend, who became the other bassoonist in the orchestra, was Meyer Osterfield. Meyer and I were both quite passionate about music. And I remember one time the conductor taking us aside and saying, you know, you're playing the bassoon, an instrument that sticks out above the orchestra. And it's very visible. I wonder if you guys could cool it and stop moving around so much. <laughs> Apparently we were very emotional in our playing. I always enjoyed playing, but I was frustrated because I didn't have a bassoonist to study with. McGarity was a clarinetist, so I took lessons with him, but I never learned things like how to make reeds or even how to fasten them. If you play on store-bought reeds, they're pretty crummy, so it was the down, that was the downside. But on the other hand, I was one of the only bassoonists around, so I got to play a lot. It was either me or Meyer Osterfield, that was it. <laughs> Later in college, I got to play in a Schutz Festival, someone organized in the Philadelphia area, that I probably wouldn't have been able to play with if I were not a bassoonist. My mother, Beth, started playing double bass in Fargo-Moorhead Community Orchestra because they needed a double bass player. My brother, David, was on viola. It was during that time that my brother and I discovered chamber music. We had regular chamber music evenings. Neighbors would come over and play through various pieces in the living room. It would be at our house or at the home of Sigvald Thompson, who was a cellist and composer and the conductor of the orchestra, and his wife, Isabel, who was the concertmistress. It was a mix of adults and kids, and it was just wonderful. I didn't usually get to play because the repertoire was almost always for strings, but my brother David would be on viola, and once in a while I'd play if there was something that called for bassoon. They'd play Mozart and Beethoven quartets, sometimes Brahms or Schumann or Haydn. My father played flute, but it was hard to get him to play. We had what we called the family orchestra, which was the four of us, and he would sometimes could be coaxed into going along with it, but he didn't really enjoy playing. David became a fanatic chamber music player, and he put a lot of energy into organizing the evenings. That's definitely one of my fondest memories of Fargo, the chamber music evenings. Other players included Betty Quam and Margaret Strahl. We also did things like an opera written by Bert McGarity, which friends performed in our living room. That opera included my father doing a poem in German called The Stork, which was his party trick. <laughs> <laughs> It was also here in Fargo that I wrote my first musical composition. It was a piece called The Sheik of Palamazoo, for no particular reason. <laughs> I have no explanation for the title other than it sounded a little Eastern. 
I wrote at least one piece for violin and piano for my brother and me to play as well. I was writing a lot for Jerky Gems, too. When I was a teenager, I used to get up early and go hang out at the local radio station WDAY so I could watch the house band for a while before going to school. It was just so exciting being around live musicians. The band would play numbers during the shows and do little themes and the transitions between programs and different lineups of musicians would play during the different radio shows. For some shows, it might be just three guys. Other times, it was a small-sized big band, eight people or something like that. Hank and Thelma were country singers, and they just had backup bass and guitar. And then they'd have a full polka band for other programs. Orville Nellermo was the bass player. Not only does he have a great name, he was a great bass player. <laughs> and he was a sweetheart of a guy. I got my first ear training watching him play. Ear training means knowing what you're hearing, which for a composer is important. Um, he wasn't playing from written parts, he was playing from chord symbols, C7, D8, D9. Um, I didn't really know much theory at that point, but I knew what, strings, uh, what the strings on the bass were. So if I saw him pluck an open D string and it was the key note, I knew it was in the key of D. I got into this thing with him where I would guess what, the key, what key he was playing in and I'd signal it and he would let me know if I got it right or not. If I thought it was in D major with two sharps, I'd hold up two fingers. If it was two flats, I'd hold two fingers down. <laughs> I don't know how we got away with all this with Frank Scott playing the piano and pretty serious about his job, but we got away with it. Our family lived in an ordinary wooden house with two stories at 1354 North 12th Street. We had a piano in the living room and a record player. There was a rule that we couldn't listen to Oklahoma, which we loved, more than once a day. <laughs> And we couldn't listen to Spike Jones records when my dad was home, since he did not share our enthusiasm for those. I attended Fargo Junior High School, and then I went to Fargo High. We walked to school each day, and we did it in some pretty low temperatures, as you know. Though it didn't keep us from the finer things in life. I remember coming back during a blizzard one time, and we stopped in on the way for some ice cream. <coughs> I remember a teacher named Mr. Wrongley in high school. And you remember him? Yeah, okay. We were supposed to do a book report every six weeks, but I made a deal with Mr. Wrongley that I could make a movie instead, and it would count for the whole semester of a book report. And I did make a movie called The War Before the War. It was about the lead up to the Civil War. I remember there was one scene that had me playing a guy drunk on corn whiskey. <laughs> I can't deny that I saved the best parts for myself. <clears throat> One of my closest friends in high school was Skip Shebold. He was perhaps unusual among my friends in that he wasn't particularly musical, but we were very good friends. My first girlfriend was Patty Vogel. She was a wonderful girl, very lively. In Fargo, our family started going to church for the first time because my parents thought we should be exposed to religion. We went to two different churches during that time, both congregational. The pastor of one of them was a very free-spirited guy. I remember one of his sermons 
was called Bingo Bango Bongo, I Don't Want to Leave the Congo. <laughs> Which was a popular song at that time. I always worked jobs in the summer. Sometimes I had a job after school, too. I worked for our friend Eddie Strauss, who had a clothing store, packing up suits to be sent to uh, various places and steam vacuuming the floor, wherever, whatever he needed. One summer, I got a construction job. I wasn't exactly a natural for that. I would do things like dig out an entire area when I was supposed to just dig a trench. One of my least glamorous jobs was cleaning typewriters. I had to brush each key and soak them in a vat of acid to get the ink off. That was really unpleasant. I learned to drive in those years. I remember one time my brother and I were making a movie and it called for me to be driving and I only had a learner's permit. So my mother lay down in the back seat of the car. <laughs> so she would be out of sight, but in the car. We had a red convertible in those days. <clears throat> that movie was called Rocky Stone Rolls On. Rocky Stone was a detective, and there was a scene involving finding a corpse down by the river. We had an old bayonet that somebody had given us, and at the end of the movie, it featured a fight with the bayonet. The last shot was my brother lying on the floor with Hershey's chocolate coming out of his mouth. <laughs> Looks just like blood in black and white movies. <laughs> I graduated from Fargo in 1952, and then I went off to Swarthmore College outside of Philadelphia, where my brother joined me for two, two years later. My father got a job with the United Nations, and my parents left Fargo for Rome, Italy, where they lived for several years. After college, I moved to New York to go to Juilliard and have lived there ever since. Over the years, I've been back here a few times to do PDQ Bach concerts, the place has always been special to me. They were very happy years for me and my family. And musically, Far Fargo is really where it all started for me. That was Peter Shickley reading from his memoir at NDSU in 2017. You can hear more about him from that evening at prairiepublic.org and search Peter Shickley. We'd like to thank the North Dakota Council on the Arts for supporting arts programming here on Prairie Public.
This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenshine, back in studio with Ashley Thornburg. Hello. Ashley, you have a trip planned, a spring break thing, and I'm jealous. I don't know if it's exactly a spring break, but sure, there will be sun, there will be sand. Um, I'm going to Costa Rica in February with my husband. You know, for me, I like traveling to destinations with big nature, like volcanoes and where sea turtles hatch. There's quite a lot of people out there who like to travel for sky events, and there is a total solar eclipse coming up, and we're turning now to travel writer Alicia Underly Nelson for tips on booking travel and how to manage expectations when Mother Nature is in charge. Alicia, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. So we're talking celestial travel or, well, we're not going to the heavens exactly, but looking upon them. Uh, And there are some pretty remarkable sky events, including one coming up basically tomorrow, (laughs) essentially, if you haven't made travel plans already, uh, happening in early April, a total solar eclipse. Yes. If this fills you with a sense of childlike wonder, (laughs) you need to set aside some time today or tomorrow to look into some travel plans. (laughs) Because the not so great news is April 8th is coming very soon. Now that we have sort of recovered from the after holiday blahs and we're looking ahead to spring travel, we've realized, oh my gosh, it's here. Um, But that's okay because while the hardcore eclipse travelers, the people that follow eclipses and make sure that they book their travel early. They, they've already got this handled. Yeah, they the, did that a year ago. Indeed, <laughs> yes. They, they are looking several years out. But the good news for the rest of us who are just becoming aware that this is a thing is that this particular path, um, where the, the path of totality, where you can see um, the full eclipse in all of its glory, actually arcs... Um, kind of in this nice little curve from Texas all the way up to Vermont. And there are several large cities on that arc, which helps. So sometimes um, the eclipse doesn't always, the best viewing spots aren't always the best places for travelers to get to. Mm. But Mm -hmm. this one is actually pretty accessible. So there's probably still some hotel rooms available. It looked (laughs) all right the last time I checked. Um, Flights, you can still get a flight if you need to. Um, And that includes major cities like San Antonio, Austin, and Dallas, uh, Little Rock, all the way up to like Rochester, New York, and into Vermont, which is nice. And there's several Midwestern cities on this path of totality as well. So Cleveland, Toledo, um, Indianapolis, different spots in Missouri and Illinois. Um, So there is a chance to kind of experience this really exciting celestial phenomenon in person, which is fun and interesting and exciting and kind of one of those it's not quite once in a lifetime but uh kind of because you know the next total eclipse uh there's one in alaska coming up here in 2033 we'll have one we'll be able to see here in north dakota in 2044 Mm. um so so that's a little while so if you're thinking oh no big deal i'll catch one next year no you're actually thinking more of a lunar eclipse those are a bit more common and we have we have some of those coming up in 2025 and uh 2024 as well but if you are really interested in that solar eclipse um definitely go check it out and i always tell people When you're doing anything weather-related, and that Hmm. includes even just (laughs) stargazing, you kind of have to, you have to hope for the best, but expect clouds or rain because, you know, 
these things can happen. And you have to keep a little bit flexible um, once you're on the ground and you're searching and you're going to see that eclipse. Or maybe you're looking for the northern lights. Or maybe you set aside a weekend to go stargazing. The place that you've booked might not be the best place to see that eclipse Mm. or the northern lights or to get the best view of the Milky Way. And you have to be a little flexible. And you're going to have to have some weather apps out. You're going to have to get to know the local meteorologist (laughs) and get those alerts on your phone and follow um, the key eclipse watchers. You're going to want to look where pilots are going. You're going to want to look where the hardcore eclipse followers are going. You're going to want to follow those communities online, see what the chatter is. And maybe be a little flexible, maybe have a rental car, maybe give yourself a little grace, uh, a little ability to go further than you might otherwise go, and keep in the back of your mind that this is an amazing, wonderful, incredible thing, but Mother Nature doesn't always give us exactly what we want. So (laughs) definitely book a place that you're going to enjoy not just for those few moments where we have this incredible right. story. I mean, it's ultimately experience. amazing, but ultimately a few minutes long. Right. <laughs> Total. And we're going to enjoy it and we're going <laughs> to love it. Like if, if you're in there having that experience, yes. Like I think that's an eclipse is one of those moments of wonder. I mean, people have written about and sang songs and yeah. told stories about these occurrences for as long as we've been people. So they're they're woven into us like the the ability to mark these occasions mm. and to make events of them, that's what we do as people. So to be able to experience that in a new place, I think is really exciting. And mm. we need to be open to it and we need to honor it. But we also need to keep our expectations reasonable, I think, too, <laughs> because that's the hard thing Yeah, it is with anything that's sky watching or anything that's weather oriented is that it really forces us to be in the moment and it forces us to see what's actually happening in front of us. And sometimes, just like when we're traveling anywhere on any kind of trip, sometimes the the experience that we want isn't necessarily the one that we get. But Mm -hmm. there's beauty Mm -hmm. in that too. Yeah, talk a little bit more about managing expectations. And this doesn't have to be totally about celestial and sky-based kinds of things. But just like you said, sometimes looking forward to something and building too much hype, hanging too much hope on one thing. Uh, do you have some kind of mindset tips there? Well, that's the, the problem with building up any occasion, be it a, a high school or college graduation, or this trip of a lifetime to Disneyland, is that if every minute that you imagine doesn't go exactly as planned, you feel like you failed. But I think we need to adjust our expectations there. We need to look at the reason that we wanted to um, take this trip or celebrate this milestone, or be with these people in the first place, and really concentrate on the feelings we want to feel, concentrate on noticing what's around us, and realize that just being together, or being even alone, if we're taking a solo eclipse trip, or we're going with a loved one, and we're each spending time in nature and looking at the stars, that's valid too. And I've interviewed a lot of meteorologists on, you know, how to spot the northern lights. And the truth is, they get it wrong sometimes, too, because this is a very, it's a very complex, solar wind is complicated. Um, There's a lot of variables. (laughs) And the forecast can be favorable. You can do all the things right. Um, And then they're still not there. Yeah, you can go out 10 to 2. You're you're going in those key places. Mm -hmm. You're checking the forecast. You're going out. 
but nature doesn't really care what we want, and that can be disappointing. I've gone out in my car many times trying to catch a meteor shower, Mm -hmm. and I fail every time. But you know what? It's fun to pile into my husband's pickup (laughs) with my husband and my son and go drive around the back roads and go Mm -hmm. somewhere where it's dark and tell stories. And that's, that's still interesting. We maybe didn't see what we intended to see, but it was still fun. Yeah. Yeah, I like mushroom foraging. I mean, I like mushrooms. My husband loves mushrooms. I like foraging for the sake of being outside. <laughs> foraging. He is like very, no, we are going to find mushrooms. So, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's the it's the journey, not necessarily the destination. So I think if you can build in the experience to include as many variables that you enjoy already, you'll be winning. So I have a lot of people that say, okay, I'm coming to Minnesota. I want to see the Northern Lights. Well, I, I'm a native of Minnesota. I've seen the Northern Lights, but I've never seen them when I'm trying. I've seen them yeah. driving home on my yeah. way home from work and pulled over on off an overpass and watched. And so I think the trick is to schedule that time to, ex- to explore nature, to go out on the trails, to see, you know, what, what the forest looks like in winter, mm. to take time to book a really great Airbnb that you love and do that outdoor hot tub. So if the Northern Lights don't make an appearance, that's fine. You're good. <laughs> you want to take that once in a lifetime Northern Lights trip. A lot of places like in Finland and Russia and you know on parts of Canada, they book these Northern Lights trips. And I think that is so bold because <laughs> there's no way to guarantee that whatsoever. But I think what's great about those packages is they really sell people on this idea of the magic of winter and mm. that combination of cozy and that crisp night air. And there's all kinds of things that, like, even if the northern lights don't appear, you're still going to get this incredible trip. And you're mm. going to have these incredible experiences. And you're going to be talking about that cool A-frame chalet that you stayed in. Or that cool, <laughs> um, some of these are, like, igloos with glass tops. Yeah. So you could lie in your bed covered in furs and stare at the northern lights. Like, you know, that would be amazing if we all had that movie experience and the Northern Lights truly did appear, I mean, that's a bucket list thing. But honestly, that experience sounds really fun to me right now, no matter what happens. So I think, yeah, just kind of building in a plan that you'll enjoy, like lots of elements that are fun and interesting mm. and you know, sensory, things that we enjoy. And I think we kind of need that at this time of year anyway, mm, you know? Mm-hmm. We're in that funny transition between winter and spring. We're getting a little stir crazy. Especially like, funny this year. <laughs> yeah, it's been an odd year. So just like indulge and really, I don't know, really enjoy yourself, I think. There's there's ways to build these really wonder-filled vacations around these celestial events that don't, I mean, they're inspired by and directed by these events in the heavens, but they're not entirely dependent on them. Yeah. We're visiting today with travel writer Alicia Underlee Nelson. And Alicia, I'm really struck by, you know, you're talking about as adults, like learning to manage your expectation. But talk a little bit about how we can kind of teach this to our children, too, because there's the very classic, you know, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And you can't do that (laughs) with looking for the Northern Lights. Are they there yet? Are they there yet? Are they there yet? I think one of the easiest ways for people of all ages to kind of manage their expectations is to to not overschedule things, first of all, to give yourself some break, um, some grace, some periods of quiet, some periods to be alone, even if we're in a car, you mm-hmm. know, 
I travel with my nieces and nephews and everybody's got their headphones on. That's not necessarily a bad thing mm. all the time. We all need the little pockets to recharge. And then I think building in one or two things per day, they're going to be fun and interesting. So the whole trip isn't barreling toward this one moment um, that we're intentional about what we're doing every step of the trip. And that doesn't mean that every step of the trip is scheduled. It just means that you can sort of read the room or read the car or read the row on the airplane and say, I think we need some rest right now. Mm. Why don't we all convene back? Like, why don't we figure out, why don't we do this last leg of last minute trip planning once we land and once we're in the suite? Um, Giving yourself and everybody a little room to rest and to breathe can help. And then letting everybody on that trip choose something that really speaks to them. Because Mm. sometimes what can happen when you have a bucket list moment or the dream trip or the trip we've all dreamed of, it sometimes is not the entire group's dream. It might be the dream of one or two people, typically Mm. the people paying for the trip. Um, (laughs) So you need to be careful that this dream trip is actually a dream that everyone shares because they may not. Yeah. Um, You know, you might have kids on an eclipse trip that, I mean, it's cool. I think it's neat, but you know, they're five and seven. They don't, they don't really care. The <laughs> highlight of their trip. I mean, my parents took a cross country trip when I was five and my sister was mm-hmm. three. Oh. And we went to, we went down to Mexico. We crossed, we saw like, I think 10, 12 states, something mm-hmm. like that. I vividly remember the Waffle House carpet. <laughs> And my mom's like, I'm so glad that we traveled all the way to Disneyland. And you remember feeding the gulls on the beach and the Waffle House carpet. Yeah. But kids are like that, you know? So like, and sometimes we've all been on a trip where, or even maybe we're out to dinner with someone and someone's just devastated that they didn't have the the special that they wanted to try. Mm -hmm. We don't care either way because that wasn't our value, right? Mm. So I think just kind of taking stock and thinking, is it, you know, Am I the one that's desperate for this to happen? Am I trying to mold this trip and everybody else's experience to fit my own? Or is this really what the group wants? And if everybody is in consensus, yes, like we really want to take this eclipse trip or yes, this, this trip to Europe is our absolute dream. Great. How do we make that not just full of these rich experiences that we want, but also restful, interesting, calming? How do we have these balance? Like we, we balance ourselves in our own life all the time. Oh, I'm feeling a little stressed out. I think I better skip dinner out with the girls tonight and just take mm-hmm. a hot shower mm-hmm. and relax. We, we all do that. Mm-hmm. But when we travel, we just keep barreling on. We have things on yeah. the schedule. We have to keep doing do them. Do this, do that. Yeah. And our expectations get so huge. I think it's nice to have everybody pick one or two things that they really want to do. And it doesn't even have to be a destination. Sometimes it's just, I want to sit in one spot and relax. And the great news is that can be anywhere. That can be in a beach chair, of course. Yeah. But it can also be on a park bench. It can be in a coffee shop. Library. Exactly. There's so many different ways to do that. So I think if we look at travel less as a list of things to do, less as an extension of our busy lives and these things we want to tick off and accomplish, Mm -hmm. and more about being in the moment that we're going to be able to weather all of those moments better and appreciate them more, even if they don't go the way that we want them to go. Travel writer Alicia Underly Nelson, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you.
And you can find out more about Alicia at AliciaUnderleeNelsonConsulting.com or read about the eclipse on NASA's website. Tom Ezern is next. Support for Prey Public is provided by Josh Beauchet, broker and realtor with Real Broker LLC. With a team of agents serving home buyers, sellers, and investors throughout North Dakota, the Detroit Lakes area, and Northwest Minnesota. Josh can be reached at 701 367 3513. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenshine. And Tom Ezern, in his essay, A Grand Jackrabbit, he writes, He captivatingly traces the journey from reverence to rivalry between Great Plains settlers and jackrabbits and illustrates a dramatic shift from communal hunts and seasonal symbolism to aggressive pest control as agriculture industrialized. A couple of weeks ago, I suggested that one way to approach our environmental history on the Great Plains is to look at our human relationship with another species. I suggested the white-tailed jackrabbit as a case study. Jackrabbits assumed iconic importance on the Northern Plains on account of our preoccupation with the weather. Their color changes symbolized the changing of the seasons. At the same time, pioneering prairie folk, although not necessarily enthusiastic about the culinary merits of jackrabbits, did consume them, often as a social ritual, a lark. Come the 20th century, the country was undergoing a quickening with definite implications for jackrabbits, as producers in a more populated landscape undertook active hostilities against them. It was no longer a matter of bachelor homesteader knocking off a bunny for a lonely stew, or a few young swains roaming the countryside with rifles. Already in the 1890s, with rising jackrabbit populations, organized community hunts commenced. In early 1894, organizers in Cooperstown called for a grand jackrabbit hunt by teams, with the losers to treat the winners to an oyster supper and the jackrabbit flesh to be sent to an eastern city to help feed the poor, the paper says. We'll eat oysters, in other words, and the poor folk get the rabbits. A year later, farmers in Cypress Township, Cavalier County, formed teams to shoot 250 jackrabbits, followed by a dinner and a dance. Rabbit was not served. A reporter noted that a good marksman led each team, which reminds us these early hunts involved rifles and shotguns, which seems like a perilous proposition, but in these years I find only one report of a person ever wounded by gunfire on a rabbit hunt. Fall of 1901, the Indians at Standing Rock also reported a grand jackrabbit hunt with a mixed bag of cottontails and jackrabbits served to the annual YMCA dinner. I'm guessing they ate the cottontails and otherwise disposed of the jackrabbits. At the same time, with urban growth to the east, there was burgeoning demand for jackrabbit carcasses. In 1900, the Bismarck butcher, George Gustner, had advertised to buy 1,000 jackrabbits nicely dressed. In coming years, there were many shipments of jackrabbit carcasses from country points in North Dakota to buyers in Minneapolis, such as the 700 pounds of dressed rabbits shipped packed in boxes from Mott in February 1913 by Joe McGrath. He said it was fun hunting the critters, and he made good money. Reporters' predictions of a burgeoning industry in rabbit meat were uh, exaggerated. This was, however, a time of expanding and industrializing agriculture, and agricultural tolerance of hungry competitors in the landscape was diminishing. 
calls for community rabbit hunts began to present a rationale of pest control. It was all well and good when farmers in the Mouse River Valley went out over Christmas 1914 to shoot 101 jackrabbits for the Salvation Army to distribute to the poor of Minot. The fellows over at Dog Den that year, so a reporter said, were more clear-eyed. They, he said, made it a business to exterminate the jackrabbits. That verb, exterminate, reflects the pest control imperatives of a commercializing agriculture. The 25 cents per carcass received on a shipment to Minneapolis was inconsiderable. Scientific farming, too, called for incorporation of legumes into crop rotations. Jackrabbits just loved alfalfa. So on the eve of the Great War, the relationship between prairie folk and their prairie hares had become distinctly antagonistic. That was a Plains Folk essay by Tom Ezern, a distinguished professor of history at North Dakota State University. North Dakota Native American Essential Understanding number two is about learning and storytelling. It states, traditional teaching and the passing on of knowledge and wisdom was done through storytelling, song, ceremony, and daily way of life, often incorporating specific gender and age-specific responsibilities. These continue to be some of the best modes for learning for both Native and non-Native learners. In this episode of Dakota Datebook, we'll listen to Katie Ferris, enrolled member of the Turtle Mountain Band of the Chippewa, in part two of What Stories Teach Us. We need to make sure that we don't clean up history too much because there's that idea we have to sanitize things to make them more palatable and less painful. But really, we learn about a, lo- a lot about ourselves and about our history by looking at painful things. The Métis Rebellion in Canada, in 1885, there were war crimes committed. I found a story which horrified me. There was a general who, when they defeated the Métis, he wrote an account about, you know, we won, the men fled, and we, you know, we took our war spoils. Every man who wanted a pony could, could have one, and they rode those ponies all night. He wasn't talking about ponies. He was talking about rape. And it was a euphemism. And I mentioned this on a story that I wrote about how there were war crimes committed. And people were like, how can you say that? I'm like, how can I not say that? If we don't bring that out, if we don't call that out, we're doing a disservice to those people, to those people who suffered. We're letting their memory be sanitized or whitewashed But we can't do that because the more we know about that, the more we talk about that, then we can start to heal. But if we hide those types of things in our history, it does nobody any good. And so I always have that moral dilemma. It's like, do you know, how do you do that in a gentle manner as best you can? But you have to do it because it's never clean. Also, I'm trying to get the public to see these things, too, so it's like you have to make sure that it's, you know, publicly acceptable. I'm Scott Simpson. If you'd like to learn more about the North Dakota Native American Essential Understandings and to listen to more Indigenous elder interviews, 
visit www.teachingsofourelders.org. Dakota Date Book is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota. Funding for this series is from Humanities ND and the North Dakota Department of Public Instruction. And that's a wrap for today's Main Street. Coming up on All Things Considered is the question, are more Gazans growing weary of Hamas and the way they handled the war? As civilians continue to pay an impossibly high price, many think Hamas will survive the war, but will be forced to change. That story will be today on All Things Considered. And later tonight on Kelly Corrigan Wonders on Prairie Public, how college kids are dealing with conflict on campus. And tomorrow on Main Street, should prisons be abolished? That is the topic of this month's Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. We get a preview from the host, Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein. That's tomorrow on Main Street. Until then, enjoy the rest of your day.